You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Okay, we're going to jump right in. Uh, Starting in verse 12, this is what Paul says. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first, and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. And so Paul's giving us a window into his relationship with the church in Galatia, right? Up to this point, it's been primarily some of Paul's story and some theology, and now he's giving us some insight into why he's so concerned about this church, this young church in Galatia. And so he remembers the circumstances under which he came to the Galatians, and he remembers the reception that he was given by them. When he came to them, we, we find out that Paul was physically compromised, that he was, that he was ill, that he was in need of care, and that rather than treating him as, as worthless or as someone to be spat at, which is the Hebrew word that we trans, translate as despise, that they welcomed him, that they happily received him as one sent from Jesus himself, as one sent like Jesus to them for their good. And so they considered themselves blessed to receive him. And that's why Paul asks them in verse 15, what then has become of your blessedness? What has become of your happiness towards me? You used to see me one way. What has happened so that you would see me a different way? And he recalls in verse 16, or in the, sorry, the latter half of verse 15, I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Saying, the last time I came to you, we had this wonderful relationship. You received me so well. You were so deeply concerned with me and with my well-being that you would have given me your most treasured possessions. You would have gouged out your very own eyes on my behalf. And so he's emphasizing their readiness at any time to do anything at all for him. That that was the context of the relationship that he left not too long ago. And yet something has happened. This relationship that had developed that was full of tenderness, full of care, full of concern, full of happiness, full of joy. Paul asks, what's happened to that? What then has become of your blessedness? And he answers the question or what he believes to be the answer to the question in verse 16. He says this, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? And so Paul essentially says, Since when does me telling you the truth make us enemies? Didn't I come to you under the banner of truth the first time, right? I came and I preached the truth to you. You received me as a blessing from God himself. Love, care, concern, joy at my presence and our fellowship together in Christ. And now, although I continue to tell you the truth, I have become your enemy. And this is somewhat ironic, isn't it? In that I think most of us in the room this morning would say that someone telling us the truth would make them a better friend, not a worse friend, right? We want our friends 
to tell us the truth. We want them to tell us when there's food in our teeth. We want them to tell us when our fly is down. Unfortunately, I've preached several sermons with nobody telling me that. Right? We want friends that tell us the truth. And so from the outside looking in, we want to tell the Galatians with Paul that they are being foolish. And yet the reality is that many of us, when we have been told the truth, have reacted the very same way that the church in Galatia is reacting to the truth that Paul is telling them. How often have we been told the truth by a friend and been tempted to turn on them in the same way? Tried to recall or manufacture any number of reasons that they should not be heard, that they should not be listened to, that that truth should be discarded. And yet this still doesn't answer the question of why Paul is upset. Right? We, we do understand a little bit more of the relational nature between Paul and the church in Galatia. There's great care and concern, this wonderful time that he spends with them in which they develop a true bond of friendship that now no longer seems to be there. And yet, that's not ultimately at the core of why Paul is upset. It's not why he's been speaking so harshly with the Galatians. Is it primarily because they've offended him? Because they've refused to believe him or because they've mistreated him? No, no. He starts the section by saying, you have done me no wrong. And so what is it? Read verse 17. They, meaning the false teachers, the false teachers make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. And so Paul's anger, his angst, his harsh words are not coming from a place where, hey, I've been slighted, and so I need to respond defensively. His anger, his angst, his harsh language towards the Galatians is utterly unselfish. It's not so much about him being right as it is about the Galatians being in a vulnerable position. Paul makes this clear by referring to them as his children. He's anxious over them. He's, he's admittedly coming across harsh because he loves them. And so think of it, think of it like this. And this is a, a, sh a, a, a short sort of personal story that, that crystallized this reality for me. And, uh, my daughter's become very good at being disobedient all of a sudden. Um, and it's great. Um, that's not true. But we've always, we, we've always, the disobedience is, the great part is not. Um, we've always had one rule when we walk out to the park across the street from our house. And that's that she can walk up to the street, but the moment we're going to put our foot in the street, I say, honey, what's the rule? And she says, hold my hand most of the time. And so we'd hold, I, I hold her hand, we walk across the street, and then I let go. She can go, she can play, she can do whatever she wants. But for those few moments, I need her to, I need her to hold my hand. She's in a vulnerable position. And the other day, in one of the scariest moments of my life that I haven't told my wife about yet, 
Sorry. <laughs> Olivia got close to the street and decided rather than to hold up her hand to run full speed straight toward the street. And I yelled at her. I don't yell at her very often, but I yell, I mean, I, I yelled her name. I said, Olivia, stop right there. And I think I scared her more than the car that was coming. And in that moment, who knows how Olivia received that? Daddy, whoa, that's weird. You don't talk to me like that. Kind of scares me. Huh? And maybe the parents, or other parents around were going, you really shouldn't yell like that. At your, you know, I'm probably being judged by somebody around there, right? And yet in that moment, what's happening? Am I, am I yelling at Olivia because I'm angry with her? Am I yelling at Olivia because she's disobeyed me? No, I'm yelling at Olivia because I'm concerned about her safety. I'm concerned about her well-being. She's about to put herself in a position that is so vulnerable in that moment in particular that it could have led to her death. That is the way that Paul is speaking to the church in Galatia. Yes, his words are harsh. He admits it. He, he's going to say in verse 20, I wish I could be present with you now to change my tone because I'm, because I'm perplexed. But he finds it necessary because the church in Galatia is in a vulnerable position and Paul wants them to be safe. And so here's the reality, brothers and sisters. As Christians, at some point, we will need to be rebuked. And sometimes we will be rebuked in ways that don't sound that loving. It may sound like yelling. It may sound harsh. It may sound impatient. And... In that same moment, it will be no less true that we need to be told the truth because it is the truth that sets us free. Sometimes it will be from your spiritual leaders. Paul is a spiritual leader for the church in Galatia. If you are a covenant member of Sojourn Montrose, there may be a point in time where we, and by we I mean you and I, or Reed and myself and you, will have to have a hard conversation. But what I want you to know in those moments, brothers and sisters, is that if there is, if there is tension, if there is something that would be perceived as harsh or unloving, it is none of those things. It is rather a deep care and concern for your well-being that you might be found free in Christ, not enslaved to the doctrines of the world. And so what, what I need you to know as a spiritual leader here, but also what I need you to know about the people around you that all of us as sojourners need to be committed to is that when we tell one another the truth, we're going to do our best to do it in love, but when it doesn't come across that way, maybe, just maybe, we should receive that as the love, concern, and true affection that is really and truly underneath that. 
that maybe we should give each other the benefit of the doubt. That maybe we're not telling the truth to one another so that we would be enemies, but that we're telling the truth to one another so that we might be brothers and sisters. And just as a side note, and I love people say that the Bible is irrelevant, but verse 20, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. As a side note, when we have these conversations, presence matters. Face-to-face conversations matter. Paul acknowledges it right here. Don't have conversations over text that you can have in person. Paul didn't have that option, so he has to resort to writing in this moment. But there are things that his presence would have helped make clear. Namely, his love and his care for them. And so again, if if you need to have a conversation with someone in your parish or in your life, Have it with them face to face. Be bold enough to do so. It'll change the nature of the conversation. It'll change the way your words are received. And it'll communicate to them more of your love and care. And so my hope is that as we now sort of jump into Paul's theological argument that we'll be reminded that when we have theological conversations or when we're walking and trying to walk in the truth of God's Word according to His ways, according to His statutes, and when we're calling one another to repentance and to return to that truth and to those ways and to His statutes, that we'll be reminded that these things happen in the context of relationship. Namely, a relationship that is primarily characterized by love, care, and genuine concern for one another's freedom. That we might be free in Christ. And so now that we have some insight on the love and concern that Paul has for the Galatians, we'll see that enacted by him as he boldly and unequivocally defends them by dismantling the theological argument of the false teachers. I love that because immediately Paul says, I'm concerned about you. That's why I'm speaking the way that I am to you. And then he immediately defends them out of that. There's literally no break in between the two. And so starting in verse 21, this is what he says. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, we're going to race through this, and I apologize in advance. But this might be the most complex part of Galatians, and we're going to try to tackle it in the next five to six minutes. So bear with me. If you're unfamiliar with the Old Testament, Paul here is referencing the story of Abraham, Hagar, his servant, his slave, handmaid, and his wife, Sarah. This happens in Genesis chapter 16. Now, earlier in Genesis, in Genesis 12, God promises Abraham that from him will come a great nation, that he will have many, many descendants. Now, this is odd because Abraham is essentially around 86 years old at the time and Sarah's around 10 years younger than that. I don't have to give you a physiology or biology lesson to let you know that that's 
a strange thing to promise someone of that age. And it's even more strange because it's already been proven by the years of them being together that Sarah is infertile. She's not had children. And so as Abraham and Sarah age all the more, after God's promise, they grow tired of waiting. They take matters into their own hands. And so at the suggestion of his wife, Sarah, Abraham sleeps with and has a son by their servant girl, Hagar. The son born to Abraham and Hagar is Ishmael. Hagar is the slave woman and Ishmael is the son of the slave that is mentioned here in Galatians 4. Now, in spite of Abraham and Sarah's impatience, in spite of their unfaithfulness to God, in spite of their refusal to believe him for the promises that he gave them, God promises that he will still make a great nation of Abraham. He makes the promise again in Genesis 18. This is after they've done this wicked deed. He says, I will still be your God, you will still be my people, and I will still make of you a great nation. And he says, and I'm going to do so not by Hagar, but by Sarah, by your wife, in spite of her infertility. And so here's what happens. In Genesis 21, 14 years after Ishmael, the son of the slave Hagar is born, Sarah conceives and gives birth to Isaac, the son of God's promise to Abraham and to Sarah. And so Sarah is the free woman, and Isaac is the son of the free woman that is mentioned here in Galatians chapter 4. And so what Paul tells us here in Galatians 4 is that Ishmael, born of Hagar, was born according to the flesh. He was born according to the work of man, right? He was born according to the plans and the purposes of Abraham and Sarah. But then what he says of Isaac is that Isaac was born according to the promise, or that Isaac was born according to the work of God, that it was God's intent from the beginning of his promise to Abraham that he would give birth to a son through Sarah, and that son is Isaac. Now, why does this story matter? This is likely the story that the false teachers would have used to convince the Galatian Christians that they needed to be circumcised and follow the Jewish law. Essentially, the false teachers would have said this. Okay, sure, in Jesus, you're a son of Abraham, but so was Ishmael. And if you want to be a son of Abraham through Isaac, you need to be circumcised like we're circumcised. And you need to behave as we behave. And you need to adopt our culture that we received from that time. And Paul responds by explaining this story that they were using to try to put people under the law. To try to make them slaves again, as Paul would say. In order to explain their actual reality what is actually true of them in light of this story 
that is being perverted by the false teachers. Are you guys tracking with me? Okay. So with that in mind, let's read verses 24 through 26. Paul says, now this may be interpreted allegorically. So he says, this historical event that we have recorded for us in Genesis can now be interpreted allegorically. And he says this, these women, meaning Hagar and Sarah, are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, Sinai being the place where the law of God was given to God's people through Moses. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. And so what does Paul say? Paul says that Hagar, the slave woman, allegorically is Mount Sinai. She is the place where the law was given and that where the law was given and where the law reigns, that place that woman bears children for slavery. The law enslaves. It doesn't set free, it enslaves. Sinai and the present Jerusalem are characterized by slavery, is what Paul is saying. The law gives birth to slaves, and the way that the people of God exercise their faith in God in present Jerusalem lead to slavery. And then he says that the Jerusalem above, this new spiritual Jerusalem, this new place where God dwells, which is within his people, not a geography, but within his people by his spirit, that this new Jerusalem comprised of God's people, that that place is born free. That those are the children of Sarah, children of the promise. And so what Paul is saying is profound for the Galatian Christians and it's profoundly offensive to the false teachers because he's saying the exact opposite of what they are telling you is true. He says, if you are in Christ, you are the children of promise. You are like Isaac, which is why he says in verse 28, now you brothers like Isaac, are children of the promise. And so, implicit in that is this suggestion that the false teachers, although their birth record suggests that they are of Isaac, are actually of Ishmael. They're children of slavery that they are the slaves, not the free. So the Galatian Christians don't need to be circumcised because they are already of Isaac. You see, because Hagar was not intended to be a wife. She never ought to have been anything but a handmaid to Sarah. The law was never intended to save. It was only intended, only designed to be a handmaid to the covenant of grace through Jesus. And this is the argument that Paul is making. And Yet, the struggle of the Galatians is not entirely a surprise. Because what does he say in verse 29? But just as at that time, 
he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. So he says, even though it, there's a quick story from Galatians where Ishmael essentially laughs, ridicules, mocks Isaac. And that's the story that he's referencing. He's saying, look, Ishmael mocked Isaac as one who was illegitimate. He persecuted him, told him he wasn't a son. I'm the firstborn. I'm the true son of Abraham. And Paul says, you know what? The same thing is happening now. You are the children of promise. And it is these false teachers who are Ishmael and who are trying to tell you that you are not the child of promise, but you rest in the fact that you are because you are in Christ. I said a few weeks ago uh, in the previous sermon that what is happening in Galatia is at its core an identity crisis. The Christians have forgotten who they are in Christ. And Paul here is reminding them in no uncertain terms that they are in every way God's beloved children through Jesus and through Jesus alone. That in Jesus' life, in Jesus' death, in his burial, in his resurrection, and his ascension now to the throne of all of the heavens and the earth, that in that we have been adopted. We're children of the promise through Christ. And yet we are of Abraham, are we not? And so it's, it's really no surprise that we're much like Abraham. And since he features in this allegory, this story that Paul takes and uses for his own purposes, let's remember how Abraham lives his life. Abraham received a promise from God. God said to him, I will be your God. You will be my people. I will make a great nation through you. Abraham disbelieved the promise and took matters into his own hand, thereby sinning against God, being found unfaithful to God. God then, in spite of Abraham, says, I will still be your God because you are still my people and I will still make a great nation through you because I'm faithful. And then what happens? Abraham repents of his deeds in the flesh and he walks in faith by the Spirit, in the promises of God. And in due time, 14 years, that's not a short amount of time, by the way. 14 years later, Abraham receives the promises of God and the great nation begins through the son of Sarah, Isaac, because God is faithful. This pattern should be very familiar to us, brothers and sisters. God has promised us something in Jesus. And his spirit is what God's word says is the seal of that promise, his, his guarantee his signature at the bottom of the contract. He's promised us that in Jesus he will set us free. He's promised us that in Jesus we have an inheritance that can't be taken away from us. He's promised us that in Jesus that inheritance is being guarded by faith through God's own power. He's promised us these things in Jesus and only in Jesus. Which is why Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, right? We've been given these promises of God that we are his children and that we're his children in spite of the things that we do. 
that through Jesus, in this moment, we are His forever. And yet, for whatever reason, whether it's through our own internal doubts or whether it's through the external world consistently telling us that those promises can't be delivered upon, we disbelieve God. We're like Abraham. We disbelieve God and we try to take those matters into our own hands. We try to find security by our own hands. We try to find identity by our own hands. We try to gather riches, inheritance by our own hands. All of these things that God has already promised to us in Christ, we try to secure for ourselves by our own hands. And brothers and sisters, the good news this morning is that God still stands here right now and offers you the promise of sonship still offers you all of the attendant blessings that come along with your sonship. And so the only thing that is needed from you this morning, whether you are a Christian or whether you are not yet a Christian but need to become one, is to call upon Christ for these promises that you are being offered in Him. And He will provide them in due time. We can walk in faith because God is faithful. We've said this a thousand times since we planted Sojourn Montrose. What God decrees comes to pass. And so if He's called you a son and He's called you an heir, then you will be His son and you will be His heir. May we, like Abraham, repent when we disbelieve and walk in faith knowing that God is faithful, knowing that we can trust Him to be good to us because we are His children, right? Again, it's an identity crisis, so we need to know, we need to be reminded who we are right now in spite of our unfaithfulness because what we're relying upon is God's faithfulness, faithfulness to His promise that we've been invited into solely through the work of Jesus. And that's why Paul ends this section with this verse, these two verses. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Brothers and sisters, real slavery is living according to the ever-changing rules of human beings. That is real slavery. When we are subject to their whims, we are enslaved. One of the glorious realities about God is that He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He is unchanging. His love is unchanging. His kindness is unchanging. His standard is unchanging. And the glorious news of the gospel is that His grace is unchanging even when we fail to meet His standards because those standards were met in Jesus. This is true freedom. This truth, this reality that we have an unchanging God who loves us eternally in His Son and has now adopted us as His sons and His daughters, that truth sets us free. 
And that's why we should never be afraid of the truth. That's why we should never be afraid of giving the truth. Because in us giving the truth, not only to ourselves but to others, God is giving us what we need to be free. And so why would we return to slavery when we're sons and daughters? Brothers and sisters, this is the identity that Paul is calling upon us, pleading with us to take hold of. And when we do so, we can walk into all these uncomfortable conversations that we have to have with one another that Paul is having now with the church in Galatia. And we can say, will I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Of course not. Because the truth will set us free. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. And we thank you for your truth, God, that you have made your truth visible in human form through Jesus, that we can see, know, touch, believe, and enjoy now by your Spirit. And we thank you, God, that you have joined us together as children of the promise, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done. And I pray, Father, that where we are tempted to be confused about our identity or the benefits thereof, God, that you would remind us that we are your children. And as we come to the table, Lord, may we be reminded of the price at which you purchased us through the broken body of Jesus and the shed blood of Jesus who now reigns victoriously over all of creation and who is himself right now in your ear reminding you that we are yours. We praise you for all of these things. And we worship you with joyful and glad hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray.